0: If only those who dream about Hollywood knew how difficult it all is. Greta Garbo Chapter 16 Some six months later, I had secured a place for Cooper's film at Bob Brown's studio. After the presidential inauguration in January of 93, Shep dropped a heavily revised script on the desk in my office, a little oasis of casitas on a rolling lawn with a view of the sound stages. I was on the lot. Unlike my first time working on a film, I didn't have to park in a subterranean garage half a mile away. A studio employee detailed my car once a week. My parking spot was directly outside my office. My name painted on the asphalt in stenciled white. B. Taylor. Woe to anyone who bogarted my coveted spot. Being married to a movie star had brought me certain benefits. However, as a producer with offices on the lot, I had reached, in my own mind, the twin pinnacle of perks. The first of those perks was that California mana, handy parking. The other was the chance to work only with whom and on what I desired. Or so I thought. Let's back up a little. During the era in which I was climbing the greasy pole... There were no smartphones. Email was a few years in the future and executives carried fat, expensively bound, loose leaf notebooks in which they memorialized and organized day-to-day events. As noted previously, I like to write things down. And my $300 day runner was a lot more elegant looking than a pile of yellow legal pads. My notebook came with a key, just like an old fashioned diary but it was open on the desk, and this is what I had scrawled across the entry for Monday. Hi, bloviating lazy head of production. Great conversation five minutes ago. Just to be clear, you want me to include seven new scenes on this opus without any increases in budget, personnel, or schedule? That's fabulous. I admire how you shot down my tedious list of facts and figures with gaseous platitudes. Just hearing them has elevated and inspired me. Think outside the box. Just make it work. I don't care about your problems. I'm late for my Pilates, lunch, massage. Wow, I'm on it, boss. What leadership. I shut the notebook and thought of the head of production, James Ellis. According to my old friend, Patsy Morris, he had been a notorious, vaguely musical Lothario in the 1970s. He had wooed the unwary with cocktails at Yamashiro's, an old bar in the Hollywood Hills with killer views that was walking distance to his once glitzy home. The house itself was kind of famous, having been the area of a silent film star before his appendix exploded and then had passed through two generations of more male offspring, from movie star to the movie star's son to the head of production, who then was answering phones for the higher and mightier and sleeping on a futon in a room half-chewed away by termites. Patsy had been one of the unwary. She told piquant stories of dancing, soaring where only endorphins can take you, with a young man, hard to think of my boss that way, in a half-empty cavernous estate. James told Patsy ghost stories and attempted to divine her future by interpreting hexagrams in a dense volume penned just about the time the ancient Egyptians were figuring out geometry. The oracle was called the I Ching. No matter how the coins were tossed or how the text was read, he always came up as the horseman a description that made Patsy laugh and the young man ever more intent on coaxing her to his bed, futon, any available soft surface. I was perplexed. The James Ellis I had to contend with was singularly unimaginative, and the resemblance to his wildly charismatic grandfather was hard to discern. In the twenty years since he had pursued the witty, lithe, glib-tongued Patsy, James had taken up fishing. The I Ching was probably in landfill. I suspected he had been a major donor to conservative causes, and was poised to shift from Republican to Blue Dog Democrat with the Clinton presidency on the way, and I knew for a fact that he had married a woman I had mistaken for an ex-flight attendant, but who was, in fact, a structural engineer. Under the engineer's iron guidance, the silent film stars, Airy, was remodeled, stripped of original architectural character, and sold for enough cabbage to deposit engineer and executive in a ticky-tacky enclave for millionaires off the 405. I had attended an event for the Motion Picture Fund at the New Ellis Estate. And while the finger food was delicious, the scale of the rooms and the furniture made me distinctly uneasy. I hadn't realized how uneasy until James had cornered me in the cavern known as the Great Room and displayed a glassy-eyed and encyclopedic knowledge of lure, reel, and fly casting. He held forth for what seemed like an eternity on the meditative benefits of standing in rushing water clad in flannel and rubber waders. When I finally made my exit, my car was a sanctuary. I locked the doors, sealed the windows, cranked up the stereo until I could feel the music vibrating through my core, and took the long, calming way home. This was the man that held Cooper's next creative endeavor in the balance. A dreamer turned drone. I placed a call to the executive tower. The assistant who answered the phone was convivial and penciled in a meeting for James, me, and Cooper on Friday. As we were setting the time, I heard music, live music, the sweet chords of an acoustic guitar rippling in the background. I remembered a similar instrument mounted decoratively in Ellis's corporate suite. Maybe the old fly fisherman tended an artistic flame hidden behind convention, or maybe he felt more at home in his offices than in that pile off the 405. I turned my attention toward Cooper. His office was in the casita across the hall. He wouldn't take kindly to the studio's meddling or the cuts to his budget. Cooper was taxed, probably not beyond his abilities as he was accustomed to six-hour sleep cycles when shooting a movie. However, now he was the father of a five-month-old baby, Sylvie, and his sleep deprivation had taken on a different quality. He talked about the baby constantly, vigorously, appreciatively. Patience? His wife was rarely mentioned, and when she was, it was ever so odd, like he was constructing, I don't know, a verbal barricade, referring to her either as the baby's or Sylvie's mother, never by name, and never my wife. I glanced up through my open office door, saw that Cooper's door was closed, and walked across the hall and tapped. No answer. Not even a grunt. I opened the door to find him hanging up the phone, frowning. Are you okay? I was just talking to, I have to go. But we have casting at 20. I have to go get Sylvie. Can't, but before I could finish my sentence, Cooper was standing over me. My shoulders held a little too tight in his grasp. I need a lawyer. Hours and many, many phone calls later, Shep and I were still at the studio. It was after eight. The sky was dark, and the lot was quiet. We were both seated on top of my desk, discarded mugs of coffee with cream cooled and skinned over set aside. Both of us were looking out a big window that framed the night. Fuck, I said. Aren't we eloquent? I rubbed my hand back and forth over my shoulder, a needle of pain behind my right eye. How did this happen? Hey now, you know there are no rewrites in real life. I turned to Shep. He looked too far away, his voice compressed by oceanic pressure. Ooh, the air was shimmying, the desk pitching beneath. Ooh, Shep, bite! He shoved a wastebasket basket in front of me, palm to my back as I doubled over, shuddered, and was sick. Spasm after Spasm. Then calm. The air smoothed out. I broke to the surface, craving oxygen. Better? He asked. I think so. I took several deep breaths. Sorry, I'm so sorry, Shep. Do not move. He answered. Shep took the waste basket out of the office. I heard the outer door open and close, smelled the cool of the evening and the mineral hint of H2O on pavement. He returned from wherever he'd gone in moments with a bottle of water and wet paper towels. He handed me the water. Sit. Just sit. There now. He took the bottle and set it down, lifted the wet paper towels, and wiped my face, then my hands. He peered into my eyes. "'Mrs. Taylor, how you doin'? "'I'm good.' "'Well, then, we're going home. Give me your car keys.' "'I can drive,' I said. "'No, you're either going in my two-seater or lounging in that land-boat thing you call a car.' "'Oh, squish, please. Your chariot awaits.' As Shep navigated gingerly to our house in Beverly Hills where Jake was in bed and Mr. Booker stood watch, Cooper was in conference with Polly. They were in a garden cottage at a hotel just above Sunset Boulevard, the Chateau Marmont, signing documents. Essentially, they all had to do with Sylvie. One was a separation agreement, another a restraining order. The trickiest was co-signing on commitment papers, followed by a petition for child custody, and then there were a succession of checks. One was for an additional year's rental on a house which Cooper now refused to set foot in, and where earlier in the day, Sylvie's auntie Peace and her mother, Patience, had been preparing to shoot up between their toes, with no visible marks, while the baby was napping. Their plans went awry when Peace started to convulse, and Patience, her unused hypodermic fallen from her fingers, called for help. At Polly's advice, Patience signed herself into the locked psychiatric ward where the ambulance had taken her sister, an attempt to mitigate what would certainly result in criminal charges, though her interlude in rehab probably wouldn't be enough to allow unsupervised visitation with her child, ever. Polly gathered up the signatures and placed the papers in her briefcase. I'm sorry, Cooper. Cooper. So am I, but I think you saved my life today. Thank you. Polly hesitated. She closed her case and looked up. Maybe you should call Billy. I can't. She gestured between them. Attorney-client privilege, but you, you might want to call her. I set down the phone in the kitchen. I had been listening to Cooper. I hoped dispassionately, while he had re-outlined the events that had driven him to the chateau. Mr. Booker had been in the kitchen with me when the phone rang and had withdrawn when I answered. I wished he had stayed put. The start date for the film would have to be pushed back. I was sure of that. What I wasn't sure of is if we should have made the film at all. Fuck it, I whispered. It probably shouldn't be made, but most likely there was too much money in play to stop it from going ahead. The following morning, while Cooper was thinking walking with an infant through a hotel full of people usually noted for their cool, was like walking down Venice Beach with an adorable St. Bernard puppy, inviting cooing comments. I was in the executive tower. A command appearance, not in front of James Ellis, but Bob Brown. The head of the studio was all smiles, so avuncular, and the subtext was perfectly clear. It was everything I already knew. More than that, everything I had struggled to achieve repeated for emphasis. The movie had a green light. The lead actor had a play or pay guarantee. Principal photography and the payment of producer's fees, among them mine, would happen as scheduled, and the release date was set. The twist due to unforeseen circumstances. Were they unforeseen? The twist was, would Cooper direct? The implication being that that choice was up to me. Somebody had to. If not Cooper, then someone else. I was nodding appropriately, responding on cue, and wishing there was daycare on the lot. Of course, that notion was somewhat ridiculous, Anyway, I looked at it. Cooper was screwed. I couldn't help but see the situation in starkest terms, baby or career. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.